Good morning and welcome to our morning service here at the Midway Congregation. We're grateful to have you present with us this morning for our worship service. If you are a guest of ours this morning, thank you for being with us. We're grateful to have you with us this morning, worshiping with us here at Midway. We're going to go right into our worship service and get started. Our opening prayer this morning will be led by Tommy Ayers. Our singing will be led by Keith Gann. Mark Howell, the preacher here at the Midway Congregation, will bring us another message from God's Word. And then to close our service out, at the end of the service, Ray Huffstock will lead us in our closing prayer before we break for our classes. At this time, let's go ahead and enter into our worship service to our Heavenly Father. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, uh, we thank you and we're grateful that we're able to be here this day to come out as a part of the body that we might openly worship you and, and we pray that we would always give you the honor that you deserve and to glorify your name. Father, we have many that are sick. We, we, they have asked for prayers of this congregation at this location. We pray for the improvement that Amber Gillian has, has seen. We pray that that would continue. We pray for Greg Tinker as he struggles with his cancer and his bone marrow transplant. 
we pray for Tony. German and Carrie Rose Smith, Trevor McLemore. We pray that they might regain their health. We pray for their families that are trying to help them and and uh, tend to them, the doctors and nurses. Recently, we've had members and others that have lost loved ones. We, we pray that they would look to you for comfort, your word, and rely on you for strength in their time of need. Father, we we pray for people all over this earth. Many people have been struggling with health problems and, and the viruses. We, we see some improvement, we think, and we, we thank you for that. We pray that it would continue to, to improve and we pray that the vaccines would would help wipe this virus out. We sometimes, Father, fail to do your will. We ask for forgiveness. Give us strength to to carry on to strive each day to be a better servant to you. We pray that you would continue to bless our country. We pray that people would accept your word. It would solve so many problems. We pray that you would continue to be well with us in this worship service to you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing two songs this morning before Mark's lesson. Number 514. Redeemed. If you will, let's stand for both the songs. We'll go through. Let's also let's uh, speed up the singing just a little bit this morning. Redeemed, how my love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the I repented of my sins and 
today, so thankful you're able to be here again. Appreciate so much the fact that you've chosen to be with us today as we come together to worship our Heavenly Father. As we begin our lesson this morning, I want to call your attention to one of the most famous parts of the Declaration of Independence. We go back to that document, and this is it. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As we think about these words this morning, I want us to think about the last part, what we have highlighted on the screen, the idea, the concept of the pursuit of happiness. From May 21 to 29 of 2020, there was a survey that was done by the National Foundation of Health, And this is what they found. There were 2,279 respondents in the survey. But extrapolating from that, this is what they found. 14% of Americans say that they're happy. Think about that. Only 14% of Americans say that they're happy. And so we're looking at a huge number of Americans who say that they are not happy. But when we're talking about happiness, just what is happiness? Well, usually when we're thinking about happiness, we equate it with a couple of things. We equate it with pleasure or we equate it with contentment. And so basically what that means is we try to get the externals of our life all fixed so that they're working for us. In other words, we might say we got our ducks all in a row so that, so that everything is going right along and that's causing us to be happy. But when we think about happiness, psychologist, a man by the name of Martin Siegelman, said that people are are happiest, humans are happiest when they have these things, and he lists five of them. He says, number one, pleasure. In other words, he may talk about delicious food or having a warm bed or, or something that causes the five senses that we have to be stimulated and, and, and to be satisfied. And so, pleasure. But he says, engagement or flow. That's what he calls the second one. He says, the experience of an enjoyable and challenging activity. In other words, we get involved with things that cause us to be happy, activities that cause us to be happy. It may be a game, it may be some other thing, but these things cause us to be happy. Number three, he says relationships. That is, the relationship that we have with the family, that we have with friends, that we have with co-workers or whatever, but relationships are what makes us happy or contribute to that. 
Number four, he says meaning is important in making us happy. He goes on and talks about how that belonging to something bigger than ourselves uh, gives us meaning in life. And of course, as Christians, we are involved in, in things and more than is bigger than us. We have the work of God that we are to do. And then finally, he says accomplishment contributes to making us happy. He talks about the achievement of goals, how that that causes us to have satisfaction in our life, causes happiness in our life. But then again, I found this. There are some keys of, uh, key signs of happiness, including feeling like you're living a life that you wanted. In other words, this is what I want to do, and I'm happy doing it. I have the right job. I have the right family. I'm living in the right spot on the, on the face of the globe. And, and so uh, feeling that we're living the life that we want, those are, that's one of the key signs of happiness. He goes on and says, well, the feeling that the conditions of your life are good. I have good health. I have a little money in the bank or whatever. And then feeling that you have accomplished or will accomplish what you want in life. And again, these are not the same people who are writing, but these are basically the same ideas. Number four, feeling satisfied with your life. And then number five, feeling positive more of the time than you feel negative about your life. And so all of these things, you know, the psychologists talk about when they're talking about happiness and the way that that people in general uh, define happiness and feel happiness in their life. But you know what? I want to I think about something this morning for just a minute. We read those words from the Declaration of Independence and we noted the last part of that phrase or the last part of that sentence that, uh, that we're endowed by our Creator with uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. The word pursuit, as you already know, means something like this. The act of following something, either to catch it or to engage in it, uh, such as some sort of specific activity. Or it goes on and says the act of striving to gain or accomplish something. Now the problem seems to be that our society has allowed the word pursuit to somehow dissolve. And so now it seems that our culture believes that an abiding and uh, an abiding happiness itself is the birthright. In other words, if you say anything or you do anything to upset my apple cart, you cause me to be unhappy, then then, then, then you just blow my day, you blow my week, you blow my month, you blow my year. Basically, you've just blown my whole life because I'm supposed to be happy and I'm supposed to be happy all the time. And you know what that's resulted in, don't you? It's resulted in what we're facing today with all of this cancel culture, all of these things that, that says, okay, you can't say this, you can't do this because I'm supposed to be happy and everybody else is supposed to be happy the way I want them to be happy. It's not the pursuit of happiness anymore. It's the idea that I'm supposed to have it every day, 24 hours a day. The pursuit has gone by the wayside and happiness is, has become the birthright we feel that we have. Now, does the Bible have anything to say about happiness? Well, of course it does. We know that it does. More than 50 times in the New Testament, we find a word simply uh, translated blessed in most cases. Makarios is the way that it's said in the original language, but as we look at it more than 50 times, nine times in what we know as the Beatitudes, we find the word blessed. Blessed are they. And then there's some specific thing that is stated in that passage. And so when we look at it, we know that the Bible does have something to say because that word simply means, oh, the happiness of whoever it is or whatever it is that's being spoken about. Now, why does it seem that happiness is always one step ahead of us or one step behind us anymore? Why is that the case? And and can we find anything from the Word of God that will help us with this idea of happiness? 
the pursuit of happiness. And, of course, I believe that we can because the Bible, as we've already stated, does say much about happiness. Now, obviously this morning we can't say everything that the Bible has to say, but there are a few things that I want to point out in the brief time that we have that will help us with our happiness and understanding of it. As we do that, thinking about this 14% number again that I mentioned earlier, why is it that so many are unhappy? And when we can uncover that, hopefully we'll understand more about happiness. Well, number one, as we think about it this morning, I would suggest that some are unhappy because they don't get what they want. They simply don't get what they want. When I think about that, you know who I think about? I think about a character in the Old Testament, a king by the name of Ahab. Maybe you're thinking of the same thing. Let's go to the Old Testament and read together from the book of 1 Kings chapter 21. And we'll read the first four verses of that chapter. There the Bible says, Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. And after this Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Now, looking on that in the... You know, just on the surface, that sounds like a pretty good deal for both of them, doesn't it? Number one, Ahab wants a garden. Matter of fact, he wants a ve- I don't know what he wants to grow, but he wants a vegetable garden. And he says, here's a good spot because it's close to my house. Okay? And then he says to Naboth, he says, I'll trade you. I'll give you some better land or... If it, if it pleases you, I'll just pay you outright for the, money, for the land and, and we'll both be happy. Now that sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? However, when we go on to the next verse, the Bible says, But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, I don't want to get too deep in this this morning because I want to focus on Ahab more. But Naboth has a very good point. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel says the prince can't force someone, that is the ruler, the one who's in charge, he can't force someone to give up his land. Why is that? Well, God had said that you can't sell the land in perpetuity. In other words, it's supposed to stay in the family to which it was given when they went in and conquered Canaan, when they entered the promised land. It couldn't be sold between tribes or anything of that nature. They were to keep it in the family. And God had specified that when he had given them their law. And so what Naboth does is reminds Ahab of what God said. He said, I can't just do that. It it just doesn't work that way. Now, what is the reaction of Ahab? It's this next verse that we look at. Verse number 4. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would uh, would eat no food. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a five-year-old to me. A five-year-old that went to Walmart and he didn't get the candy that he wanted to get or he didn't get the toy that he wanted to get when he was at Walmart. The Bible says he came in vexed and sullen. What does that mean? Well, the word translated vexed here means peevish, sad, dejected, discouraged. And the word translated sullen means angry, and displeased. And so he faced the wall. He laid down on his bed and faced the wall. Now I don't know for sure why he faced the wall. And I don't know for sure why God said that, uh, put that in his word, other than he gave us this description. Commentators differ in why they think he faced the wall. I'm not sure that it's really important. Some say, well, you know, he just didn't want to see him pouting. And some say basically, well, he was acting in such a way so that 
his advisors and his helpers would somehow come up with a scheme, come up with a plan that would help him get the, the land that he wanted. I don't know for sure. I just know how Ahab acted. And he acted like a baby. He acted like a child. He acted like somebody who was spoiled rotten, didn't he? Because he just could not get what he wanted. That's the way a lot of folks are, isn't it? I'm not going to belabor this point this morning because a couple of weeks ago we talked about people who have a yearning problem when we're talking about finances. You know, one of those six areas of life. They have a yearning problem. They, they want things. But the cure for that, of course, is still what we find in 1 Timothy chapter 6 at verse 8 where Paul writes and says, but if we have food and clothing... With these things, we will be content. Most folks, you know, we want more, especially here in the United States where we live in this land of plenty. We keep wanting more. But Paul says we need to be content. Having the necessities of life, we need to be content. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 5 one more time. There the Bible says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We have a reason to be content. We have God on our side. We have God as our helper. We have God who is there with us. And so when people don't get what they want, they become unhappy. But the real key is we need to learn some contentment. But then secondly this morning, some people are unhappy because they have not learned to give They have not learned to give. What do you mean by that? Well, let's look at a a passage, hopefully, that you are familiar with, but I want us to go back and think about it for just a moment this morning. Let's go back to the book of Acts chapter 20 at verse 35. There the Bible says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now remember, I spoke about more than 50 times in the New Testament this word makarios is used. It's used in, in the Beatitudes, nine times in the Beatitudes. What our Lord himself, that's what Luke records for us, what our Lord himself said is that you're happier if you give than if you receive. A lot of folks have not learned that as of yet. You know, we think getting will make us happy. Well, if you think that's the case, you ought to try giving. You ought to try giving. Now, as we think about this, we need to understand that there are some folks who are incapable of giving, not because they don't want to, but because they don't have that which they would like to give. You know, they would love to be able to help others in so many ways, but they just do not have it. And so we're not saying that these folks can't be happy. Uh, For many of them, they do give of themselves, and that is the gift that they give. But as we look at it, as we think about it, this passage is referring to people, uh, what we're looking at in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, is referring to people who do have the means to give and to help others. And rather than perhaps amassing more and more and more for ourselves, then we, we, we make sure that others are taken care of. That's a part of being happy in life. Now what are some of the, the blessings, the happiness that can come from giving? That's really where I wanted to get to. Our Lord said it's, we're happier if we give than if we receive, but... Why is that the case? We want to look at two passages. Number one, look at Luke chapter 6, verses 37 and 38. Here's one of the reasons why we can be happier. The Bible says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now watch verse 38 in particular. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, press down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. 
For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why is it more blessed to give? Why are we happier when we give? Because the Lord can give more than we can give. The Lord has more to give than we will ever have. And He says, when you give, I will bless you. I will make you overflow with the things in your life. Now notice a number of ways. He, he's talking about in an agricultural sense when you're, when you're out gathering you know, the, uh, the crops that you have, uh, have planted, maybe wheat. Notice all the ways that he, that he talks about it. He says, you, you put it in your basket, you've you got a good basket, a good measure, and then you take it and you press it down, and then what do you do? He says, you pick it up and you shake it together, and then you put some more in it, and, and you keep going, and the Lord puts it in your lap with this thing running over. The Lord can and will bless us. Now, this is not the only passage that teaches this principle. Let's go to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Paul says the point is this. He's talking about giving here. He says the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound to every good work. Again in this passage the grace that he's speaking about and, and, and that he has talked about and will talk about uh, talked about in chapter 8 and talking about in chapter 9 is the fact that they're giving to help others those who are in Jerusalem. And Paul makes it clear the only reason they had to give was because God was giving them, and if they would give, God would continue to make that grace abound to them. Now, folks, we don't give just to get. That's not the point that Paul is making, that Jesus was making, or that I'm trying to make. You know, there's what's called the health and the wealth gospel. Many try to preach that, 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 that we serve God so that God will make us rich. That's not, the, that's not the point. But the grace of God can abound in our life so much that we can't even begin to imagine it. And if the grace of God is abounding in, a, in, in, in our life, in my life, what effect does that have on me? What effect does it have on you? It provides for your happiness. But a lot of that is based on the way that we give to others. Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Who has given more than he has? He ought to know. He does know. And if only we would learn the lesson, our happiness, our pursuit of happiness would be greatly enhanced. Next, some are unhappy because they have not learned to forgive. They haven't learned to forgive. Now, as we look at this a passage, you know, I want you to think about how many live every day with anger, and resentment consuming them in their life. Anger and, and, and resentment. It may even be this morning that you, even though whatever it is that you're thinking about may have happened a long time ago, maybe even decades ago, maybe you still think of an event or a moment or, or a person or a situation that creates pain in you. You know what's happened? We've allowed these things to take us over. Maybe those thoughts are just randomly popping up in, in your head and they do that quite often and you feel weighed down 
because this bitterness keeps on growing and vengeance has become a lust for you. You see, unforgiveness is like a chain around your soul. A chain around your soul. When we do not forgive, it's like a chain around our soul. If we don't forgive, we remain bound to the person that we cannot forgive, held in their vice grip, so that it just will not let us go. And when we don't forgive, you know what happens? We end up tortured. Tortured! Because we haven't forgiven. We're unwilling to forgive. Tortured in our life. It would be hard for a person who's being tortured to be happy. Would it not? I mean, just somebody help me understand that. If, if we're being tortured, how could we be happy? To forgive is to set a prisoner free. Only to discover that the one who has been set free is you. You're the one who is able to get that chain from around your soul. Here's a couple of passages we need to remember. Luke chapter 6, verses 37 and 38. Let's go back to that passage we read just a moment ago. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Now, this whole paragraph, judging not, uh, condemning not, uh, forgiving so that you'll be forgiven, and then giving, as we talked about, all are tied together into that measure that's being measured back to you. Okay? That measure that is being put into the basket and pressed down and shaken together and more put in it and running over again. But it all depends on whether or not we're willing to allow the prisoner to be released. We're willing to allow the chain around our soul to be snapped because we have forgiven. Look at the book of Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves. Now wait a minute. Who is Jesus talking to? When Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves, Jesus is talking to me. And Jesus is talking to you. Each one of us, every one of us. Pay attention to yourselves. Now what does He want every one of us to know? If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns again seven, uh, to you seven times saying, I repent... Well, you'd do good if you'd forgive him, but you don't have to. Uh, that's not what my Lord said. You must forgive him. Must. You know, some people will make the argument, well... He hasn't learned his lesson yet. He just keeps doing it over and over and over again. Jesus said he does it over and over again. That's what Jesus said. And if he repents, you know what? You are to forgive him over and over again. Over and over again and again and again and again. For your sake. How did he start this word, uh, this verse, this passage? Pay attention to your brother, your enemy. Pay attention to yourselves. Some are unhappy because they have not learned to forgive. Some are unhappy because they ha are not care they are carrying around the heavy burden of guilt. The heavy burden of guilt. You know David's secret of happiness? We find it in the book of Psalms, Psalm 32. We could talk about the hell of, un, of concealed sin in verses 3 and 4 of that passage. For when I kept silent, 
My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David said, I was the most unhappy person in the world. When I tried to conceal my sin, I was the most unhappy person in the world. You know, we start trying to conceal the bad things we do from the time that we're basically babies, don't we? You ask a little child, who ate the cookie? I didn't. Wasn't me. You know, who made the mess? Well, it wasn't me. We try to conceal things. And as we grow older and older, it just gets worse and worse in our life, doesn't it? We just cover up bigger things, don't we? Or at least we try to. David said, when I was trying to do that, his sin with Bathsheba, when I was trying to do that, I was a miserable person. There was no happiness at all. But then not only do we have the hell of of concealed sin, but we have the healing of confessed sin. Look at verse 5. The Bible says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David said, I've got to do something. I've got to change this life up. And so he confessed his sin. And then there was the healing, or or rather the the happiness of the forgiven sin. Verses 7 and 8, You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. David's life got back to the way it should be. He was back in a relationship with God, and he was happy. He's still the man after God's own heart, and now his relationship with God has been restored, and so he's, he has that happiness restored. And if you go on down in verse 10, he goes ahead and writes, he says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. After he's tried to hide his sin and and now he has confessed his sin and that happiness has returned. He, he, he talks about that. But I can't leave this point without going back to the way he starts the passage. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David says, here's my secret to happiness. Here's my secret to happiness. Uh, He he talks about being happy in the first two verses, but here's the secret. I got rid of the sin I was trying to cover up. God forgave me, and my life got back to normal. We don't need to be carrying around the guilt, the burden of guilt that we may have in our life. In the book of Romans, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Paul would quote from what David said back in Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Remember more than 50 times the word happiness? Two of them are here. And he takes that from what David said back in the Old Testament. That's where our happiness can come from. We need to remember that God intended for guilt to be for our good. To be for our good. Not a burden, but to be for our good. It was for the good of Peter, was it not? Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times, and he went out and he wept bitterly. He got himself restored back to God, not because he cried, but because the guilt that he was bearing caused him to turn back in the right direction. And in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7 at verse 10, there the Bible says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This guilt, this idea of guilt, it can lead us back in the right spot. Don't go around carrying your guilt. If there's something amiss in your life, you need to make it right. Confess it and have your happiness restored that has been sucked away from you by the guilt that you've been carrying around. But then, many are unhappy because God is not important in their life. He's not important. See, He's the true source of happiness. 
God is the giver of happiness, and God's Word, His Bible, is the guidebook to happiness. Look at uh, three passages with me. Look at Psalm 40, verse 14. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Those who are doing wrong are not to be happy. That's what God's Word says. Psalm 119, verse 2, Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. And it's not on the screen, but Psalm 146, at verse 5, Blessed is He whose help is the Lord, or the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord His God. I guess it is. Revelation 14, verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Those who have been doing God's way, they're blessed, they're happy. Happiness of heart can no more be attained without God than light can without sunshine. Then happiness itself is born from heaven. That's where it came from. And it leads us back to heaven. And so the only place we can find true happiness is finding God and His ways. Going back to where we began this morning, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Is it wrong to pursue happiness? No. The Bible teaches us that. As we close out, though, one of the most famous meals in the entire world is the Happy Meal. The Happy Meal. Go to, go to McDonald's and you get the Happy Meal. I don't know if you know the story behind the Happy Meal or not, but back in uh, the 1970s, the mid-1970s, there was a restaurant in Guatemala, of all places, a McDonald's restaurant in Guatemala, of all places, in which they began to put this meal together for children. And they would give them a burger and their fries, and they would give them, you know, the drink. Well, McDonald's corporate, they heard about it, and so they charged a man by the name of uh, uh, Bob Bernstein to explore this idea and see what he could come up with, enlarge it, make it better. So Mr. Bernstein researched it and came up with the idea and branded it the Happy Meal. And so now kids can go and they get their hamburger or they get their chicken McNuggets and their fries or their apples and they get whatever drink they want and they get the little toy in there, you know, and it just makes them happy, at least for a few minutes. But if only finding happiness was as easy as getting a Happy Meal, not always that easy. That's why it's called the pursuit of happiness in, in what we're looking at. But the, the concept is real, and we can have it. And as we do that this morning, be sure to pursue contentment. Be sure you pursue being a giver. Be sure you pursue being a forgiver. Be sure you pursue being forgiveness in your own life. Be sure you pursue God and God's Word. That's where you're going to find true happiness. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. If you want that true happiness that can be found, why don't you obey the gospel today? Put your Lord on in baptism. Maybe you're here and you've already obeyed the gospel, but you need to come back to the Lord. Whatever the case may be, if we can assist you this morning, why don't you come right now as we stand and sing?
come to the time in our worship where we have the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper together. The, the last three weeks we've read the gospel accounts of uh, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Today I want to read from 1 Corinthians where Paul writes about the Lord's Supper. And in the gospel accounts, uh, these are historical accounts that basically simply give what Jesus did. And they're remarkably similar, um, or maybe not so much considering the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul uh, is correcting some problems in the church in Corinth, but basically after addressing those problems says the same words that the gospel writers said about the Lord's Supper, beginning in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us give thanks for the bread. Father in heaven, we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to worship you through communing together with the remembrance of the Lord and his suffering. Father, we are thankful for this emblem of his body, this bread that represents his body that was broken for us. Father, pray that we'd keep in mind the suffering and the sacrifice that he made and what that obliges us to do in, in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Let's give thanks for the cup. Father, as we continue in prayer, we're thankful for this emblem of your son's blood, and we pray that we'll remember that blood and the sacrifice that it signifies to us, the suffering and shame that he went through in order for us to have forgiveness of our sins. Father, we pray that we keep this in mind every day, but especially on this day when you've commanded us to partake of these emblems to help us remember. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A little later in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 16, he reminded them of what they needed to be doing as far as setting aside a predetermined amount that they've determined in their hearts to uh, continue with the work of the church. And we want to give thanks for the opportunity to do that. Father in heaven, we're thankful that you've blessed us the way that you have, that you've blessed us in this nation so far beyond any nation that's been blessed. And as far as material goods and the opportunity to do good. And Father, we pray that we keep this in mind as we go about our work, that the blessings come from you, that we would think about what we need to do to give back, to give what is rightfully yours. Father, we pray that the funds that we give will be used wisely and to bring glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Mark, for the lesson of the hour. We appreciate it so very, very much. Remember uh, those that are in the bulletin that have been asking or still are asking, requesting that we remember them in our prayers. Let's remember the following, Amber, Amber Gilliland. Uh, Amber continues to improve. Continue to remember her. Greg Tinker, this is one of the coaches at Walker High School who's battling bone cancer. Tony German, son-in-law of Cordain Tucker, who is in University Hospital undergoing some treatments for heart problems. Carrie Rose Smith, sister to Deb Bray in Princeton. 
following a heart attack this past week, and then Trevor McLemore, who's been diagnosed recently with cancer and is beginning treatment soon. Also, Roy Odom has pneumonia and he is asking for our prayers. Let's continue to remember uh, Roy in our prayers. Uh, Brian Wolf will be having some ear surgery in the morning. Let's remember Brian. And also, my brother, uh, Randy Johnson, will be having some surgery to remove an extended blood clot in his leg this coming Thursday at Shelby uh, Baptist. And we appreciate if you remember him and your prayers as well. Remember the third Thursday, those that uh, have in the past attended the third Thursday class, that's going to resume on May the 20th. If you've never attended that class, you might want to consider it and come because we have some really, really good studies. I think these are all the announcements that I have. These are the ones that have been given to me. Let's remember those in our prayer. Thank you again this morning for being present, and if you have, uh, are joining us this morning via YouTube, we appreciate having you with us via YouTube as well. In just a moment, Ray will come forward and lead us in our closing prayer. Then after that, we will disperse and break out to our classes. Uh, you're encouraged to please stay for a class, uh, give another approximately 30 minutes or so, and then we will be dismissed. Make your plans also. Uh, to turn in to YouTube or tune into YouTube this uh, evening at 5 and uh, Mark will bring us another lesson of the hour and then make your plans to be present. I like to say make your plans to be present because Wednesday nights we get to come and be present. This coming Wednesday night at 6.30 for our midweek Bible study. If you would like to go ahead and stand at this time, please do so and Ray will come forward and lead us in our closing prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, we humbly come before you, acknowledging you are our creator, you are our God. Heavenly Father, we ask that you'll continue to bless us with this opportunity to come together to worship you, to study your word. Heavenly Father, we pray that nothing will be done to infringe on that ability. Heavenly Father, we at this time pray for you and your blessings on those that are sick, we know that there are many, many relatives and family and friends. And Heavenly Father, at this time, we ask especially for Amber as she is on her recovery from her illness. Heavenly Father, continue to bless us in those things that we uh, fight for that are right. We pray that you continue to bless our country. We know that we are in turmoil and strife at this time. And we know that if we would only turn to your word, that all answers to our problems are in your word and in your, your guidance. Heavenly Father, continue to bless us throughout this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.